0: You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Happy Wednesday everyone! Today's episode is with Justin Raymond, the founder and CEO of Flex Day. Flexday is a Toronto-based startup that is looking to create a community of office-free workers where nomads alike can work from different environments that energize them individually. I'm a happy consumer of Flexday and I've been nomading through their 20 different locations as my personal office throughout the week and as someone who really truly believes in this new way of working, um, I'm definitely in big support of what the company's MO is. Justin personally has had just a truly fascinating career where he has just gone about creating three successful companies that are still even in operation today, and Flexday is his fourth. And he was also the North American president of Halo, a UK-based taxi app company that competed in the rideshare market with Uber and Lyft in the earlier days. So we get to really explore um, what the competition was like and what he really went through Um contrasting with when he was an entrepreneur running his own companies compared to joining a larger organization like Halo. And Justin's story was just a fascinating one where he's just constantly listening uh, to his own gut and really sticking to the mental model of just always building a company with a mission of social responsibility at its core. And he constantly hints at that and talks about that uh, throughout our conversation. And I never really connected the dots, but only through really going through the details and the intentions behind his actions did I actually see that uh, and really kind of understand what really drove him to go through this crazy journey of his. And so before we go into the interview, I just wanted to uh, remind you guys as listeners to help support the podcast by rating it on iTunes, by giving it a five-star rating, and it really helps the podcast grow and reach a wider audience. Uh, And it really also helps if you can leave a positive review on just how the podcast may have helped you expand your perspective in different ways. And if you do leave a review, I will always give a shout out when I next read it. Um, And I'll also mention your ID name as well. And so yeah, without further ado, here is my conversation with Justin Raymond. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today's podcast guest is Justin Raymond. Hey Justin, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Uh, Justin is the founder and CEO of Flexday here in Toronto. And so Justin, for the audience members who may not be familiar with your product, how would you describe Flexday and what you guys do? Uh,
1: Flexday is a new offering in the world of workspace. Uh, We take excess capacity in restaurants, hotels and cafes across the city and we turn them into uh, highly functional places to work and
0: meet. Excellent. And how many uh, users do you have currently in the system? We just surpassed
1: 3,000 users. Uh, We call them members um, and uh, yeah, we're off to a great start.
0: Yeah, and I'm one of the happy members of the product as well. Um, and right now we're recording from one of the Flexday offices. I guess this is your headquarter office, the central location of Spadina.
1: Yeah, this is a part of our hub and spoke test. Um, we like to have a little bit of classic office space, um, but we really focus on the distributed office network uh, gotcha. being in new spaces with no overhead.
0: Gotcha. And before we go deeper into Flexday, um, I want to take it back much earlier to your childhood eras um, last time we spoke you talked about how your father was an entrepreneur and if I'm correct he founded a steel company um, was he always an entrepreneur gr- while you were growing up like did, is that all you like saw of your dad constantly like running his own company
1: that's all I ever saw I know that he had um, an early sales position with an insurance company when he first started into the workforce. I think the um, inability to control his own future and destiny and pace of which things would evolve um, was the catalyst for him to start his own business Um, and uh, which is very similar to my uh, experience myself. It's um, entrepreneurialism is really based on um you know, a little bit of controlling your own destiny, um as opposed to being at the whim of decisions made by other people. So yeah, my dad was an entrepreneur and uh
0: and I am as well. <laughs> when you were young, um did did your parents kind of try to nudge you into the entrepreneurial path or were they actually more against it?
1: Um they didn't really uh they were, you know, when your summer rolled around as a student, you always had a, you know, you always had to demonstrate how you were going to stay busy and hopefully make some money. Um, I waited many tables uh, through my university days, but I also started my own companies: um, student window cleaning, um, different sort of neighborhood entrepreneurial, easy setup type ventures to. You know, bring in more money and learn the ropes of starting and running a business so um, yeah I mean just uh, uh, you know always always out looking for the next thing uh, my parents were supportive uh, I think when I was younger I think when it became more of a career path that I was defining um, there was definitely the safeguarding uh, you know that came into play even my father as an entrepreneur Was um, I think a little bit concerned about the path uh, just because it's high risk, and uh, um, you know it's a lot of parents. Their job is to keep you safe and uh, try to you know keep you out of harm's way. And the entrepreneurial route is full of ups and downs. And uh, I think that there was an element of protecting going on, but at the end of the day, they had to embrace it because. It's just what I did.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned about how you um, had started like various entrepreneurial ventures even when you were a student. And so you went to school in McGill and mm-hmm. you did the Bachelor of Education. Mm-hmm. Was the initial intent to become a teacher, or why why did you go that path? Um, if you thought about like being an entrepreneur and experimenting. Yeah, you?
1: I mean, honestly, at that point in time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I just thought a BA, a Bachelor of Arts, was a little less um, applicable in the in the real world, so I thought, um, oh, you know, I'll I'll go with the teacher route and see where that ends up. Um, I did uh, really enjoy um, the teaching aspect that was involved in the McGill curriculum. So you actually did get to, you know, take classes like teach classes, high school classes, um, and I loved the experience. I learned a lot about myself early on, but I also learned that. Um, I didn't want to be a teacher.
0: No, that's a, that's a valuable discovery to have. Yeah. Early on. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I, if I look at your, if anyone looks up your LinkedIn, um, we see legal Education, then you went to Lang and Associates as an account manager. And then when, I think that's where we see the pivot into more like the entrepreneurial journey where you were um, one of the founders of Taxi Guy, co-founded Cell Wand, mm-hmm. and then you also like, or you're a founder of Carbon Accounting. Mm-hmm. And then you go into Halo, which is still then a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you advise startups, and now you've founded FlexDay. So, mm-hmm. multiple startups um, in your journey. What happened in Lang, and, Lang and Associates? That's a marketing firm, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, so they specialize uh, in um, associative marketing, uh, the link between sports uh, sponsorship and brand. Um, psychographics, demographics, so they would take, um, uh, you know, at, at that time the focus was around the Olympic Games in Atlanta in 96 and uh, Lang Associates did a great job of, um, you know, linking the brand properties whether it's Coca-Cola Classic or Fresca or Sprite or any of the different brands that they had with the user base um, and the sport that would make the most sense. And then they would build sponsorship platforms uh, for those retail activations across the country. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I loved it. It was a great uh, early um, opportunity to you know, explore all of North America. Um, I traveled a lot. I executed major sponsorship agreements uh, with US, USA Cycling and uh, National Off-Road Mountain Bike Association. Tons of different things that brought um, you know the real world of business into my into my life i also got to see firsthand how coca-cola works um the business processes that they use um and and just get comfortable with you know the, the the processes that are in place and what is required in order to get projects completed properly um so yeah so i i mean i had a great experience there i think the reality was uh what sort of led me um to go into my own path was um, a job came up, uh, sort of in the next phase of the business, and I applied for it, uh, thought that I um, was deserving of the job, uh, but didn't get it. And then it sort of hit me that, um, you know, this is the kind of thing where I don't get to control my own destiny. Um, my destiny is controlled by yeses and nos by other people. and. It just didn't really sit well with me. Uh, I wanted to you know, go at my own pace
0: and, and create a future that I'd find. Hmm. And so how did the initial kind of decision-making process go? Did you just, after you get the job rejection, was it just a quick, you know what, this isn't right, I'm going to quit Lang and I'm going to start something, or how was the... Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: The, so during my time of traveling, I entertained uh, a lot of different people at different functions, um, and I was kind of troubled by just the lack of options when it came to other people potentially drinking and driving. Um, that just sort of stuck out to me like, you know, there's no tool, there's no action-based um, opportunities for people to get a cab. Um, you know, easily anywhere in, across the United States, or across North America, there wasn't just an easy turnkey phone number I thought was the easiest tool um, and there were lots of different vanity numbers in the market 1-800-Flowers was huge so I just looked into the opportunity around what type of technology would be required in order to build a tool where anybody anywhere could have an easy-to-remember phone number for taxicab service uh, and you know get them and their friends home safely so um, you know. Long story short, um, I met with an AT&T engineer uh, and found out about their, um, uh, basically their automatic number identifying software systems uh, and how those networks worked. And I built um, a solution called One AAA Taxi Guy and took that uh, to Molson back here. I flew home and presented it to Molson. And they uh, they loved it, most in Canada at the time. Um, they loved it and sponsored it, and uh, basically helped me build the plan for the rollout across Canada. So that's that was uh, my that was the fork in the road, and I went down the entrepreneurial path uh, at that time.
0: Yeah, and was this uh, still during the late '90s, during like the kind of the tech boom?
1: This was '98. Okay. Uh, is when we first signed the deal uh, with Molson, and um, yeah, and the company's still alive today. And ah. uh, we've uh, done uh, right around five million safe rides home. Um, yeah, a lot of it was beginning payphone technology um, that moved into uh, cell phones, um, mobile phones, um, and then an app. And uh, yeah, it was a great program um, it accomplished all of its objectives. Um, the number one objective, of which was just giving people an option um, to get a safe ride home.
0: So you were building out this plan back down in the States while you were there on travel for business?
1: Yeah, I was, uh, I was intrigued by the opportunity. Uh, I did a bunch of research on the side. So I guess that was my first official side hustle. Uh, um, and I just sort of found that I became really passionate about it. And um, I wanted to solve it. And as uh, you know, I started uh, meeting with the right people, meeting with experts in both the taxi cab industry and in um, the.
0: Just doing it all in your own time.
1: Yeah, my own time. Yeah, I, I remember driving up to um, University of North Carolina uh, to meet um, sort of like the the most famous uh, taxi cab industry. Um, his name was Gorman Gilbert. Uh, He actually wrote the book called The Taxi Cab, Um, and just sitting down with him and telling him about my vision for linking all of the uh, mom and pop cab companies together through a toll-free phone number and and asking his perspective on it. So I did that on the weekend. Um, I just studied it, and then I ended up uh, meeting the AT&T engineer, and that's where I started blueprinting the idea um, and really understanding how to do it. And then I sort of put myself in a position where I couldn't turn back. And uh, that was with a conversation with Molson.
0: Wow. Why did you pick Molson?
1: Uh, well, originally I met with the Brewers Association of Canada, showed them the idea. They told me that as an industry body they couldn't select which company I would work with. Um, uh, so they told me to make a decision and, and they would make the introduction. So they made the introduction and it went great.
0: Yeah, and I think as I, as I think about it, it seems Kind of, it's in sometimes like the obvious I guess solution where, yeah, got companies selling beer obviously want their customers to be happy and also safe, and this could be a great way for them to also contribute to that cause. Yeah,
1: social responsibility is huge. Yeah, <laughs> uh, in all aspects, um, and I think at the time the major um, the major breweries were saying you know take care, uh, know when to draw the lines or these like. Sound bites and uh, Taxi Guy was the first action-based tool that could actually give them some data, um, demonstrating their impact, their positive impact on um, you know giving people an option and, and getting people home safely.
0: Hmm. And so then, once you get the I guess funding from Molson, with it just now you have a lot of money to just build out a full team that can really. I guess Yeah like we, it was
1: pretty light on people it was uh, it was um, I think we got up to five or six people um, uh, but yeah we built the telco um, infrastructure across the country we built out a bilingual service uh, one triple eight taxi SVP uh, to make sure that Quebec was uh, involved and happy and um, and then we layered on top of uh, um, the telco infrastructure we layered a payment uh, a payment device um, which are actually paper-based kind of like Canadian tire money but it was called taxi dollars it became the number one sales tool for uh, Molson sales reps across the country that they would use in market as a customer added value piece and um, it really became this in you know, this whole program of, um, of social responsibility and it, and it was woven into almost every part of what Molson did so it was uh, it was great it was not a a massive, uh, um, you know, revenue-based company, but the impact that we made um, was very rewarding. Had a chance to speak at the um, multiple government levels around uh, social responsibility and social businesses, and um, it was great, very rewarding on many levels.
0: Hmm. And is this was this the venture where you're what you said, um, your parents were trying to kind of, maybe say, hey, Justin, maybe you wanna tone it down, maybe you don't want to go to entrepreneurship just yet, or... Yeah,
1: like, uh, you know, did you ever think about, you know, maybe getting a, uh, you know, sales job, entry-level job at a big corporation, whatever it was at the time, maybe IBM or Nortel or some, like, you know, growing industry, and um, they would throw those suggestions at me every once in a while, um, but again, I mean, it was really obvious that uh, I wasn't going that route, and I think they just adjusted.
0: Yeah. And so then, uh, as you're operating Taxi Guy, then you start another company called Cellwand. Yeah, so Cellwand... Uh, yeah, how, yeah. how does that happen when you're uh, already running
1: one? Yeah, so we had an opportunity, the technology was changing. Cell Cellphones um, started emerging um, rapidly. Everybody was moving to that device or a device. And um, I saw an opportunity to create um, sort of the first abbreviated dialing or, or some uh, dial shortcut that people could use on their cell phone rather than dialing one triple eight taxi guy. wanted to make it a little bit easier, but also, um, uh, you know, build some new business relationships with corporations. And um, so the concept was a number sign taxi or pound taxi um, would give people the opportunity to not only call a cab, um, On their phone, but also we had the technology that would help them, that would basically eliminate busy signals. So one of the problems with landlines when calling cabs was you'd get a busy signal, have to hang up, call back, busy signal, all of those kinds of things were were difficult. So we built a a little piece of software that allowed people to sit in a holding queue and find the first available dispatch that was available in cities. So. yeah, it was a neat little uh, evolution of Taxi Guy. Um, there were now two companies, so Taxi Guy stayed on its path, um, and Cell One uh, moved towards relationships with um, with wireless carriers. So, first one was with Rogers. Uh, they were super supportive. It became a revenue share um, opportunity for them, and, uh, and then we moved into Bell and, and Telus. Um, and then the the smaller ones, and then uh, um, we started moving into the States. Um, That's about the time that I sold my equity to um, um, Global Live, which is here in Canada. Uh, They're behind Wind. So they uh, essentially um, bought my shares and then the rest of the team continued forward and landed many of the wireless carriers in the US. Um, yeah, and the company again is still going today um, millions of calls um, and also there was an element of social responsibility that was brought to the industry from a drinking and driving perspective as well so it contributed greatly to that
0: uh, and yeah it's, it's, it's crazy how the the company resulted from I guess an inefficiency that you saw in your first company and then you just and so you just decided, you know what, I'm going to create another company that can solve this issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm all, I've always been keenly aware of, you know, how is this evolving? Um, what's becoming outdated? Uh, what needs to be done in order to catch the next wave? Um, so that was, uh, it was, you know, kind of like the perfect next step for uh, a taxi industry solution. Um, but a little more focus on mobile technology, so yeah, I mean call it uh, the evolution of or the um, You know, maybe disrupting your own business in some ways um, But it was yeah, it was a great experience it was, it was an opportunity for me to understand new technology as well and um, a new segment industry segment, so It was uh, all in the name of evolution uh, and continuing to be relevant
0: Right this continued path of growing and reinventing yourself. I guess constantly
1: Yes, especially with technology starting to speed up, you're really starting to see. Wow, this is um, this is getting faster. Things are changing faster, and and um, you can reach you could reach way more people um, sooner. So yeah, it was a lot was changing at that time.
0: Yeah, and I think given your background, you've you know, started out in marketing. You were an account manager, so it's a very relationship-based you know, skill set. So you didn't go to engineering, you didn't have a technical background, but you're getting deeper and deeper into this technology-based, new technology-based uh, company. Were there moments of, you know, I, I could totally see it, an average person just being doubtful and thinking, I can't do that, I'm not, I don't have the technical background, I don't have this kind of skill set. Um, how did you get over all that stuff? Uh,
1: you know, to be honest, when I find a problem that I'm passionate about, I, I just go and try to figure it out. Um, I don't think... If, if, you're open to, if you're open to researching and connecting with other people that have a variety of skills that you don't have, you can really solve anything. Um, so when I didn't know something, I would go find somebody that knew about it. And I would talk to them about it. Um, oftentimes, they would become enrolled in the mission, maybe at an advisor level, an investor level, or maybe even a partner level. Um, and, you know, we just, it's just be, no one person can solve something on their own. I knew that pretty early, you know. Um, and I love the opportunity of just learning and, and finding out, you know, how to get something done, even though I didn't have the skill set. So I didn't, um, I didn't struggle with a block around any of those things. Um, uh, I'm very persistent and I'm extremely curious. Uh, and when I think that there's a gap in the market or I think that there's a major problem that um, can be solved, especially if it has like a humanity element to it, I'm just driven to do it. And I just, you know, I just sort of follow my passion.
0: Yeah, And I, I think a constant recurring theme I see hosting these podcasts and also just from all the reading of you know, great entrepreneurs that I do is, is things, the two big, two big factors um, that intertwine all of them is curiosity and humility, not know, like knowing that yeah you can't solve it by yourself. You have to do it with a team or with a community.
1: Um, yeah, it's it's all about the support of the people around you. I mean, if you're the enabler, if you're creating the solution and people see what you're up to and they, your passion is usually contagious, especially if it's authentic. Um, and I think, you know, I was just lucky, I've always been lucky to find people that identify with the problem that I'm trying to solve and they want to help and they have the ability to help and the capacity to help and they just do. Um, so yeah, I mean it's uh, it's just like anything. It's you know it takes it takes a community, it takes a village uh, in order to um, you know raise a child. But it's the same thing with a business. You're not doing it on your own, and you have to be um, you have to be honest with that and open open to support. Raise your hand when you've got questions and um, ask for those meetings, uh, you know, or those coffee chats or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. And when when you were running Cell um, So, so One, you talked about you know you were very passionate about this social responsibility act, um, impact and but you sold your equity before or like whilst it was getting into a bigger market. Why why did you decide to do that?
1: Yeah, that was a. Um Selwan was a really great experience on many levels, both from a business perspective, but also from a life perspective, understanding and you know, who I am um, as a business leader, as a founder. I have a co-founder, um, one of my childhood friends, and uh, we got together. You know, he loved the mission that I was putting on the board, um, and you know, we decided to go at it together. Um, which was great I think the two of us um, we could move mountains together um, but at the end of the day um, all startups hit sort of like critical strategic um, points where decisions are um, have to be made and oftentimes there's you know two diff- two different visions or three or four and you know you just have to you just have to make a call, and at that point, um, I had taxi guy, uh, and I had some other ideas, and my fa- my co-founder was, um, you know, really passionate about the direction that uh, that he wanted to take the company, and and I wasn't as much so. So I just let it go, um, and it was a good opportunity for me to. Focus on other things, and um, but you know, still uh, be be a part of the company, um, but not an active, not an active day to day participant. So, it was great. It was a good life decision. Um, understanding, you know, that things can get complicated, uh, and things change, and you know, you just move on and take those learnings
0: with you. And I think, I think now, you know, as you reached this stage of your life, I think it. It's always I think easier to look back um, with hindsight, but when you were actually experiencing it, how how did you make uh, like was there like a specific decision process that you went through to um, have conviction over I think this is the right path, this is the right decision I am making, and I can live with this and take the step forward
1: um, it wasn't it wasn't um, so like it wasn't about the business per se it was more about where I was at Um, it was my gut you know I just felt it was time to to um, move forward and take my what I consider the most important thing in the world is time how am I gonna use my time more effectively and and, um, um, yeah so it was it was just it was the right time it mm-hmm. was the right time for a move, and uh, I felt that I talked to my you know my support network and it was when I really evaluated the entire situation as a whole, it was a very easy decision and uh, it was great you know it was a it was a, a new door you know that while that door you know i guess in some degrees closed, many um, more opened and uh, i was I was free so it was great
0: right and, and so you you sell sell one and you start another company called Carbon Accounting. Um, And was this company also being started whilst you were also at Taxi Guy as well? Or did you leave Taxi Guy and start this one? No,
1: Taxi Guy was now very very automated. So it it basically ran, it was continuously running on its own, Uh, very few people, mostly all telco tech the back end um, and Molson had taken a uh, mostly the they'd taken control of the communications the marketing the PR so it was it was kind of on autopilot it was a great great business um, running on its own and I had a lot of time to start to explore and, um, at that time there was uh, a growing uh, environmental uh, movement around the triple bottom line and um, corporate social responsibility but tied more to the environment. Um, I had a, a keen uh, interest in that area and I understood transportation companies quite well so I looked at the gap of what transportation companies were going to have to do in order to um, in order to meet those uh, the criteria of buyers of their services and how are they going to um, you know document their uh, their goals their carbon reduction strategies uh, in what framework are they going to do it in how are they going to answer RFPs from major buyers and um, so I just I just sort of started studying the area and looking at it and there um, there was a, there was a, a real need because there was just a lack of knowledge, a lack of expertise in the area. and I didn't have that expertise, but I did see the problem. So um, yeah I just took the next steps and researched it and found out what would be the, uh, the most acceptable, um, you know the most where the biggest pain was in the industry. Just talk to uh, some of the leading transportation companies here in in Toronto. Right in my own backyard. I just would drive around and uh, you know, leverage my network and go and sit down. And I found that there was a real need for the, for for their companies to be able to speak uh, and act and report um, intelligently around carbon reduction strategies. So it's just basically sustainability. And what were they doing to? Uh, you know to prepare themselves for that and um, so I put together a, a very simple uh, almost agency approach like an agency model um, without real hardcore measurements but just sort of starting to understand do an inventory understand what the baseline looks like uh, and then start putting a, a plan in place and I realized that um, I needed an expert on the team um, and uh, that's where I started knocking on doors and uh, finding different sustainability or carbon reduction experts um, that understood the greenhouse gas protocol and all the different um, you know requirements in order to make sure that this is done properly and that's where i met uh, i remember um, i had a meeting with uh, an organization and there was a there was a gentleman in the room And I told him what I was doing and um, I told them what I was doing and what I wanted to do. And and this one person um, who ended up becoming my partner um, just loved it. He just thought thought that there was a real need there in the transportation industry for a focused um, program. And he he just, you know, he ended up calling me after the meeting uh, and asking to have a coffee. And we sat down and... We literally—I signed him. He, his contract expired at the end of that month, and, and uh, I brought him on, and uh, right away, and he built the um, you know sort of the scientific side of it, um, so that we could make sure we were really doing what we said we were doing. Uh, and um, yeah, his name's Ian Lipton. Uh, he um, just became such a great business partner and and friend. And, uh, we built a great business very quickly. We stayed in the transportation space for a while um, we had companies in uh, 15 countries um, uh, in our transportation program and then we ended up building the same type but a little more robust uh, reporting uh, system uh, for hotels around the world uh, and we landed Marriott international we had, before we knew it we had built a, a beautiful piece of uh, software software as a service that um, and we were Managing every aspect of environmental reporting for almost 5,000 hotels around the world, um, and uh, it was really cool. I mean, it was just this like uh, you know you see a gap in the market, you figure out where the you know the problems are, and figure out how to solve it. And uh, that was a great business, um, and there's still aspects of that business that are operating today. But that's uh-huh. that story. Wow. <laughs>
0: No, I think that I'm just listening to it and it's so cool so I can only imagine how much cooler it must have been when you're actually going through it um, it's, it's it's really neat how you you know you had all this experience in transportation and then you leveraged it and you find a small different niche but still there's an alignment with your passion of overall social responsibility mm-hmm. and so you um, as like the Vice Chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger said you're just playing in your circle of competence and you say okay how can I work this out mm-hmm. and you decided to start a company that in that small segment and then it eventually blows up into having like 5,000 hotels later on just eventually yeah. changing over.
1: Um, it was amazing yeah I mean it, in the world of business travel which is what we were we ended up quantifying for, for fortune 1,000 companies around the world Ground transportation was part of it, so rental cars, um, you know, taxis, limousines, that kind of thing, black cars to the airport. They were they were definitely in that space and spending a lot of money in that space. They wanted quantification from an environmental perspective, but what they did even more than that um, was hotel stays and flights. Flights was kind of handled, um, but there was this massive gap in hotel quantification. Um um, carbon and uh, all aspects of sustainability needed to be measured and reported uh, because they're all public companies and they needed to, to do this. And we just—I remember meeting uh, a gentleman from American Express business travel, and he loved what we were doing. And uh, we told him about our hotel program, our nascent hotel program, and, and he said we want to be the first ones on that. We want to we want to get this out to our our clients, and and it was just you know that type of catalyst that just drove it. And within six months, we were you know we had the. Top executives from Marriott International coming up to our little company in Toronto, sitting down negotiating a a major software purchase. It's great.
0: Yeah, and but did you guys have this kind of vision when you were starting off like that we want to be this huge global company or was it more, there's a small problem in Toronto, we just want to fix that and it just slowly evolves from there? Yeah,
1: I think you know everything, everything I've ever done has always included the possibility of something bigger. Uh, but the, the emphasis has always been on the, the earliest relationships and understanding why they're interested, and why they continue to use something that i built or we've built or we created software. You know, it ties into Flex Day today and all the work we're doing around product market fit. Um, you know, it just has to start at the, you know, it has to start at the at the roots, you know, and you got to never lose focus of that. And with the other companies, as long as the service works and people love it and it's providing value, I've always held that the conviction that this could you know, this could be anywhere. And uh, I'm I've always retained a focus on open possibilities and letting you know, just letting it happen. But in order for that to be true, you have to uh, make sure that everything's taken care of at the beginning the first relationships are the most important I think we always did a great job of that
0: yeah and just really focusing on dominating a small niche and Mm -hmm. expanding from there and not really thinking about expansion until you have something there with a competitive advantage in the beginning
1: That's exactly it Um, you know you have to there's always the allure of becoming bigger you know fast um, we already hear this from different uh, potential investors and that's you know that's a really difficult thing to to manage because sure everybody wants to get big fast that's you know if there's all these stories about oh my god look at how quick and how fast and how big these companies are moving and have become and, um, but you you can't graduate until you do your homework and um, the early stages of any business, you have to be obsessed with doing your homework and doing it very well, uh, and then you'll graduate. And um, that's the root of any successful business. It always starts small, and the core of any business is doing the necessary work.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think someone's probably said this, I, but I, don't, I can't quote it to a particular individual, but practically it's along the lines of creating a product for everyone is practically making something for no one, because, right. You can't have you can't start off with the entire world being your customer. There's always a small subset, like not even Apple had everyone in mind. It was just a small subset of really niche hardcore users, and they spread it, and yeah. it eventually becomes for everyone. But even yeah. Uber wasn't for everyone. It was for some people who mm-hmm. wanted to use an app to mm-hmm. use someone else's car. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and so this is going well. Carbon account is going well, but. You, you transition out of that into you now joining a company that you did not start, called Halo, which is mm-hmm. a taxi-based company from the mm-hmm. UK. Mm-hmm. How does that how yeah, how does that gra- um, happen? You know, you you're now stopping that entrepreneurship path to join a startup.
1: Yeah. So um, uh, taxi guy was good hands. Um, uh, the carbon accounting company was in, was in great hands, um, and I just was watching, uh, you know, I had actually, um, I had met somebody from Uber at one of these trade shows it was right at the beginning of Uber
0: and... Uh, Wait, what year is this around?
1: Uh, this is... T- 2009, 10? Mm, a little bit later. Okay. Yeah, 2010, 2011 they were just starting their Uber cab and they were causing a lot of uh, headaches in San Francisco. Um, they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't even have an idea of what the, what the you know possibility was or what the, what their business was going to become. But it was extremely interesting to me because yet again, there was this new mobile technology, um, you know, using GPS to, and the person's location to, to coordinate, um, you know, basically transportation services. And it, it blew me away when I saw this because the, the possibilities were endless and so I started looking into it and um, And I remember just uh, starting people started coming at me with what do you think of this how do you think this is going to impact the, the industry the transportation whether it was cab companies or, or limousine companies or whoever um, there just is this emerging discussion uh, around the sort of I guess the people that were Researching it there was a lot of curiosity about how big this could become and what it could do um, To the industries so I just dove into it. Um, I started researching all of the different players in the market um, um, Halo was very interesting to me because they were creating this um, almost social network between cab drivers in London and the uh, daily active users were just exploding the uh, time on app was massive um, and yeah I just sort of was in this space and then uh, out of the blue I got a call from uh, Jay Bregman uh, who was the CEO founder of Halo and he had talked to a mutual friend about uh, their need to come to North America with their technology because they were exploding in London and uh, would you know would our mutual fr- he asked my our mutual friend who um, would he recommend and uh... So Scott was our mutual friend, he he said um, you got to talk to Justin. So next thing I knew, I was uh, on the phone with Jay, and then I was on a flight to London, and um, you know I communicated to Ian, who's my business partner, that I was looking at this thing, and I was very curious about it, uh, and he was fully supportive of it, and said go you know go check it out, and and then when I first uh, when I first used the app, the Halo app, to to summon a London black cab. Uh, to pick me up from the hotel, to bring me to the, to the uh, Halo office for a meeting. I mean, I was, it was just like the most, it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I couldn't believe it. I knew it was the future. Um, and, uh, you know, I ended up taking the, taking the role of uh, president of uh, Halo Canada and building the system uh, and the network here in Toronto and then Montreal. Um, yeah, so it was—it was just once again a shift in technology and uh, all of the possibilities,
0: endless possibilities that I—I I just wanted to be a part of. I were you uh, trusting your gut on this one as well? Where just this, you know, carbon accounting was fun, but now this is the new interesting thing. I can't stop thinking. about, I'm just going to go do this instead? Pretty
1: much. Yeah. 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 If I'm being truthful, it was—it uh, was just I was overcome by. By curiosity and uh, and passion, and you know, it's really I just was so intrigued by what could happen,
0: and I wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, and so um, you know, I can just see from hindsight that now you're entering into this super competitive field where now Uber and Lyft are looking to grow massively, as you as, as I guess you're trying to grow Halo massively in North America. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have these big competitors, mm-hmm. and from what I know of the tax cab industry. Uh, the industry in the UK and Canada are very different. Like to be like a black cab driver in the UK, you go through like a two year, like very rigorous um, yeah. training program. Yeah, totally different. Yeah, it's a very, it's really hard to get. It's a profession there. Yeah, yeah, and they have a lot of respect from the people, and I think now, even till now, like, Uber can't really fully operate in London, right? It's practically all still the black cabs that
1: do it? is uh, operating. Okay. Uh, there's a lot more restrictions around what right. they can and can't do, where they can drive and that kind of stuff. But,
0: um, but yeah, I mean, they've, Uber's definitely there. Okay. Yeah. And so, but I'm guessing that the difference of the market might've been something that the halo execs might've not considered.
1: Yeah, it was the evolution of, um, of where this was gonna go. Now Uber started in black cars, we all know that. Um, they were basically offering people you know fancy black cars for the temporary little bit more expensive than a a cab and they were you know really pushing the fact that cabs are not clean and um, uh, not as nice and um, those types of things and they found a a really good wedge in the market and they exploited that Um, but the real power that was a linear growth model for uber Uh, While they definitely had some uh, fast adoption and it was very buzzy, um, the growth for them came when um, they saw what Lyft was doing um, with peer-to-peer. So, you know, anybody, their own car driving people from A to B. That was the change. That was what the, that's where the linear growth turned to exponential growth. Um, by taking that model to market aggressively. And that's what did it for Uber and Lyft today. I mean, they're both extremely successful companies. I know many people uh, at both and spent a lot of time with them. And, um, and you know, it's just it's amazing to see what, what has happened in transportation. Where Halo had a tough time was um, they heavily aligned themselves with the cab industry. Um, they didn't believe that uh, cities, uh, municipalities, would capitulate when it came to rules and regulations Um, and they didn't believe that the market would be opened up to anybody with their own car driving people from A to B. Um, But we, you know, and and most of that's based on being in London, listening to the black car, the black cab drivers, which again it is a profession. Um, They make very good money, Uh, it's very tough to get into, Whereas in North America, um, it's an entry-level job. You know, it's a, it's a, it's it's a working man's, uh, working woman's uh, role in society. If you're going to drive a cab, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's a, it's like a, it's a tough, tough gig. And um, even the drivers here, the taxi drivers here, which you know, I had, I was lucky enough to get to know thousands of them and. When I did Halo, and they're, they're just—they just want to make a, li- a living. They want to make a better living. So, with the restrictions of a 12-hour shift that the cab company brokerages were offering at a pretty expensive, um, you know, lease fee, when Uber came out with their, you know, you can work when you want, you can use your own car, um, and all of the incentives that they provided, it was—it was like the promised land for a lot of drivers. So they moved over, they abandoned the cab industry and they moved over to ride sharing. Gave them more flexibility in their life, more time with their family. The earnings were better at the time with the subsidies that Uber was providing, so it just made sense. And our team, you know, the operators that were here in North America, we knew it. We talked to the global executive team, I was on a part of the global executive team. Uh, we had many conversations about the power of ride sharing and how can we do that here. And, just wasn't supported because they were—they um, painted themselves into a corner and they had aligned themselves with the cab industry. Um, so it's just you know, one of those things where I didn't control the decision. Um, we built a beautiful business here in Toronto. Uh, I don't know if you, ever, if you were using it at the time, but it, it, was, such a, it, was, it was such an amazing uh, marketplace to actually see. Um, so many people loved it, defended it stood by it we competed head-to-head against uber with you know their, their mountains of money uh, and their marketing dollars but we just built a we built a great service we had 85,000 customers uh, 3,000 cab drivers from a, you know we were almost at 10 million uh, annual revenue just an amazing story uh, um, one of the top top performing halo markets in the world but um, unfortunately south of the border the competition with uber was Really, really difficult. Um, Lyft was entering quickly into the markets that we were in, and it was just a decision. Um, the you know they just decided to move back to Europe where they were strong. Uh, it was their base, and they had the support of um, local governments. Uh, they were just sort of more in their own strategic element. There, they were they were they were making money. They could a great opportunity to retrench. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the halo story. It was the greatest experience of my life. Very tough to say goodbye to it. Um, you know, I won't uh, mince words. It was, uh, it was probably the most devastating business uh, period of my life. Personally, um, it was very hard to let it go. I poured my heart and soul into it. Um, everybody that was a part of it knew that. Um, I treated it like my own, and that was a mistake. I thought it was my company uh, and it wasn't and um, yeah it's just uh, I learned I learned so many lessons I learned about myself I learned about business I learned about technology I learned about marketplaces Um, yeah and you know that's life live and learn and uh, I think it was a success in in you know in many many ways. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, so I guess uh, you know I guess from a business perspective, if something doesn't exist, but it failed, um, and I've accepted that.
0: What, what was the most memorable learning that you had?
1: Yeah, I mean there are so many. I had uh, you know I had the opportunity to work with just the greatest people. We had we had. Such an amazing team at Halo. Like, um, all, everybody was just rowing in the same direction, completely supportive. Um, we were all up to, you know, this massive task in a very competitive environment. Um, but everyone was just bought in, and it was it was beautiful. The the, the magic, the team, the dynamic we had was just uh, that's one thing I'll I'll always remember. And that and that nucleus is why the cab driving community got behind us um, and supported it like they were you know we had you know what i loved most about it is that we opened up the office to the cab drivers of toronto Um, we we weren't um you know this exclusive you can't come in world we actually designed the office to be a driver's lounge uh in addition to to where we did business you know we'd have a little TV area, living room area, our washrooms were open to drivers, cab drivers, you know, one of the most difficult thing about being a cab driver is, um, you know, you, you just, you have no access to a washroom and, um, you know, it's sort of like back to humanity, right? It's like, what do you mean? How does that, you know, they're not allowed into the brokerage offices, um, so we just opened up our entire world and our friendship and our community to the cab drivers. And uh, it was a beautiful thing that I'll always remember. I mean, I still see, you know, cab drivers on a regular basis. Uh, when I'm out on the street, they'll honk and say hi. And uh, we, did a, a, we created a beautiful community in a very short time. And uh, it, was a, it was a service that benefited many. Uh, and that's what I loved about it.
0: Hmm. And so you've had, you know, about three successful companies that you founded now you and you decide okay I'm going to join join a company and it ends up closing shop and yeah. so you take some time off you're advising other companies given your extensive you know, experience and network and then you finally decide to start another company um, yeah yeah well there's a little bit of a,
1: uh, an important transition yeah. uh, in there where um, when Halo was um, wrapping up Quite a few companies descended on us to do some due diligence and understand how we built the marketplace uh, so quickly, uh, why Toronto stood out, um, and why it succeeded and the others didn't. Um, yeah, well, how did we get that? Uh, you know, you know, we sort of we caught lightning in a bottle here in Toronto, and, and it didn't happen in Chicago, New York, DC, Atlanta, anywhere else in North America. So they wanted to know why. So. So we entertained several companies that came in and wanted to spend some time with us. One of which was Transdev North America, which is one of the largest multimodal transportation companies in North America. And uh, their team came in, and we spent three days with them. And out of that came an introduction uh, to the CEO. I went down to D.C. to spend some time with him at his invitation, and um, we got along extremely well. He was very curious um, as to what my experience was, and my learnings were in all of the different uh, areas, not just at Halo, but in the previous transportation companies as well. So um, he offered me a role to work directly with him on some uh, special projects, and uh, so I took that. Uh, His name's Mark Joseph, and um, those, you know, the the next year and a half spent with Mark were uh, just amazing, just amazingly wonderful uh, you know months both from uh, you know a growth perspective a healing perspective um, so that gave me perspective once again um, and it was out of that uh, that time uh, spent with understanding trans devs business and looking at a bunch of different things that um, they could do differently um, in this world of disruption, I mean, there were many different divisions were being challenged by new technology, and my role was to help them understand, um, you know, how to how to evolve, uh, maybe to take a look at a couple of different acquisitions and additions to their team, that kind of thing. So it was amazing from that perspective, strategically. Um, kept me close to the world of transportation and technology, but it also, um, uh, you know, I had a great experience working with Mark. Um, sort of amazing entrepreneur himself um, and just a great person. So that's when um, the origination of Flex Day started.
0: Yeah, and you you, you wrote a nice uh, article piece on your own LinkedIn about the birth of Flexday Day and how it came up from, once again, solving a frustration, uh, that a problem you saw where it was really personal to you and that the workspace that you had created or the office space just wasn't doing it for you it wasn't allowing your creative juices to flow you just felt like you couldn't innovate you felt constrained Mm -hmm. and that's when you decided to to just create a company um that could solve that problem for all the other people how did the like first six months of flex day go it's been an operation for about a year and a half just past that now and yeah how how like the first six months were you now in the process of you know you had in that, you talk about you, know, you have a family now, so you're not uh, the young Justin who could start a bunch of companies <laughs> before. And uh-huh. now you're deciding you know what, I'm going to start another company mm-hmm. from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, not even in the transportation industry that you have you know, long years of experience in. Mm-hmm. How, yeah, so how does the uh, first six months go for starting Flex Day? Yeah,
1: so it doesn't appear to be in the transportation industry, but in fact the root of Flex Day is... Um, is in the transportation industry so i've always been uh, obsessed with the commute uh, it's the biggest transportation problem in the world it rips families apart it causes stress it steals time it's just full of frustration um, but people do it all the time and and they're doing it because it's like it, it's expected of them it's almost like you you must come to the office it's like to me is um, which to me needs to change. So people are spending you know, half an hour each way, 45 minutes each way, an hour each way, two hours each way. Um, and in many cases, the work that they're doing when they arrive, it could be done anywhere. So what are the existing commute solutions? You know, just uh, you know, faster trains, more trains, more lanes. All of those things fill up. They've tried to do this over and over again. So the biggest transportation issue or problem in the world is the commute, and I was obsessed with okay, how do we look at this differently? And um, my one of my earliest ideas was called Office uh, Office X, which was basically like anybody can open an office and welcome people in anywhere. Um, any company, any 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 empty space or half empty space could become a A new location to work and uh, the whole vision was around and driven by proximity the only way to solve the commute is to eliminate it um, and all unnecessary commuting and the only way to do that is through proximity proximity to a viable dependable uh, workspace that is around the corner and there's so much empty space there's so much excess space restaurants being the tip of the iceberg um, uh, it's just you know sort of everywhere it just needs to be activated and that's you know that's the genesis of Flex Day that's what came out of our sandbox and that's what we started with and um, you know the, the obvious entry point is uh, restaurants other people are doing it around the world um, you know we're not the only people doing this I think there's um, a lot of innovation happening around um, around workspace be it expensive fancy co-working places uh, or more ground-level, community-based stuff like we're doing. Um, but, um, you know, I truly believe we're going to be the ones that crack the code and, uh, and um, you know, basically create functional workspaces around every corner. And that's how Flagstay got started.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> no, the commute kills. I, when I was a managing consultant, like, every, everyone constantly, like students, asking me, oh, do you get to travel a lot? Do you like to travel? And I always have to tell them that travel sucks. <laughs> the, it work, does. It's it's work commute. It's yeah. not vacation travel. It's nothing like that. It's not like you're going to, you know, uh, Tokyo for a month and you get all the free time to do what you want. It's no travel sucks. You you're in you go to a pretty shitty part of the country in the <laughs> middle of nowhere in a bad hotel yeah. and like even and so I was I think I was a unique consultant who specifically requested no travel yeah like I didn't want to be on a plane I didn't want to be in a car I didn't want to be anywhere the office was a 10 minute walk from where I lived and that was exactly what I wanted to keep yeah exactly and Mm. I think that's when like the shifting of the paradigm is just when you realize that you lose so much time exactly um, from commuting it's crazy yeah it's crazy so many people are in that trap yeah and my friends considered that I was really weird in doing this but when I went to Calgary I would map out like i triangulate grocery store work <laughs> and my gym the three places I spend the most amount of time on yeah. and I would find a condom in the middle <laughs> right. regardless of price like that would just be it yeah yeah well no, that's I mean that's <laughs> forward thinking that's
1: exactly how you know uh, but uh, you know in, in that scenario in your scenario the only uh, the only person uh, required for permission was was yourself unfortunately and mm-hmm. Many work arrangements. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, expectations set by uh, team managers or team leads or CEOs or you know, VP level that um, you need to be here, and it's understandable to a degree. You know, once a week maybe, but literally every day. Um, you know, I think uh, that time uh, could be recaptured and and uh, used in so many ways. And um, yeah, I mean that's what we're trying to do. We're really the big picture we're trying to unlock freedom and unlock uh, uh, excess space that's you know sitting there and, and breathe life back into neighborhoods and communities and um, you know why do why does everybody have to vacate their community every day or their neighborhood and go downtown or wherever it is up to you know some industrial park um, why why can't they stay in their neighborhood and, and uh, you know adjust accordingly and and work with their neighbors and their communities side by side in the big you know the businesses that exist so I think it's a gradual transition but I think the you know the, the reality is that, that there are some some macro forces that are really driving uh, this type of thinking and, and we want to we want to be a solution to to meet all that demand
0: mm-hmm. and I think you know there's a lot of great industry leading companies that are embracing that remote model mm-hmm. where you start treating people like adults and mm-hmm. trusting them, and you and I are both big fans of Jason Fried and DHH's mm-hmm. work. Um, and there's like, other great companies like Buffer, Apia, that are all remote organizations that mm-hmm. do it well. Mm-hmm. And from what you've experienced as running Flex Daily, like, what kind of pushback have you felt from both um, organizations, but also like restaurants? Do restaurants like pushback on letting people come in and use your space? Yeah, I mean, there's old paradigms, you
1: know, in the in the world of restaurants. Um, It's they just some owners understand and can see the future. Um, Owners, managers, decision makers, whatever they are, uh, it's different usually at each place. But the, you know, the reality is is we get two types of, um, of conversations. One is there's no way in the world I want people with laptops open in my space. Um, uh, and then the other one which is such a refreshing uh, conversation which we're having more and more of every day is is I know these people uh, live in the neighborhood and they're currently working at home uh, or they're struggling to work from a coffee shop or um, whatever and they need a better place to work and, and we want we're, of course we want to be a part of the community a Community Hub we welcome them into our space and uh, we'll actually create a designated area for them over here, back room, second floor, and they start to use their space more intelligently, and they start to build relationships with these people, with the with the flex day members that come in and become their customers. And uh, in every instance, it's turned into uh, new customers, new relationships, um, and just a you know just a better world in that little
0: area. And it seems that the company's mo is still aligned to your passion of social responsibility humanity um, in the element of you know eliminating commute, creating communities how did you know that well when did you know that social responsibility was this kind of big passion area for you
1: i am not sure i just think i feel like ever since every idea I have it's woven into it somehow um, and that might feel or sound a little bit out there but it just kind of is it's like everything every for the most part everything that I've ever done from a business perspective has a um, an angle that is beneficial to society or to people one way or another or you know, um, and that is has always been what has helped make the business successful and different um, you know, a good idea is a good idea but if a good idea is helping people um, I just find like it uh, it sort of illuminates just sort of um, sort of illuminates what the business is all about gives it a purpose and people like that like it brings people together um, yeah I mean I don't really know if there was a lightning bolt one day that was like, I'm going to build socially responsible businesses, but it's, you know, there really wasn't. Um, I just have identified things that I wanted to change and then I would go after and try to change them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, trusting your gut.
1: Yeah, just, yeah, just sort of following my passion. Um, Just kind of the way it's been
0: yeah Yeah. no I think um, it, it. I think that's the most honest form of you know which, why you do what you do um, when you can't sleep thinking about the problem when you can't you forget to eat and yeah. it's just continuously there then you know that, I think I have to do it or you tell everyone about it no one else does anything about it mm-hmm. so you give all your ideas away but you're the only one that's passionate about it so you just feel like you have to do it yeah I, you know it's
1: like um you know, sometimes you just gotta throw yourself out there and, uh, and just hope you'll be caught. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just part of the game. Yeah. It's part of living a life that's, uh, mm. I guess, a little bit out of the ordinary and full of unknowns, but I've tried the predictable uh, job world and it's just not for me. I know it's for others and people like that safety, but I just uh, feel like I'm not
0: alive. And I think that kind of self-awareness is immensely important um, to just live the life that's suited for you. And as we wrap up to the final parts of the interview, um, the kind of staple questions I ask at the end, uh, the first one being, what is a belief that you have that you think goes against the conventional wisdom? What is a belief that I have that goes against
1: conventional wisdom? Um, I believe in 10 years from now that uh, workspace will be free. You won't have to pay for what is one of the most expensive pieces of life uh, right now. So, yeah, I think it's going to be com- completely democratized and, um, and opened up. And uh, the ability to get work done, focused work or group work, will not cost you an arm and a leg um, and will not require travel. It'll be free and it will be everywhere.
0: Hey Amen, I believe that too. And we'll hopefully see a future like that coming sooner than 10 years. Um, <laughs> and if your 20-year-old self, so I guess Justin in third year, McGill, still getting his Bachelor of Education, <laughs> were to look at where you are now, what do you think his uh, emotional reaction would be? I think, he'd,
1: I think he'd say, I knew it. I think he'd say, yeah, I knew that's where you'd be. And not, yeah, I mean, not, not with any, more in the realm of, um, you know, you're doing your own thing. And, uh, you know, it's sort of evident to my 20-year-old self. Becoming more evident at that time to you know, that it would be an interesting path Um, Because I wasn't doing what everybody else was doing and I sort of felt like You know, I've got to do it on my own and 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 get to it and blaze this blaze the trails
0: And what kind of advice would you like to have given to your 20 year old self?
1: I think it's really um, you know it's rooted in listen to your gut, um, it's rooted in be kind um,
0: yeah yeah in a in a world that's obsessed with data i I try to stress more so that believing in gut and intuition it actually has value um, in so many cases. Hundred percent. Yeah, I think um, your story has definitely been an example of one such case. And yeah, thanks for thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with myself and uh, the guests. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been uh, you know I've never talked through my journey before, so this has been really cool. Yeah. really helpful in many ways too thank you
0: oh no problem i guess that happens when you're not applying for jobs and not so many interviews. <laughs> Yeah, that's the end result yeah and so for some of our listeners who you know might be budding entrepreneurs or who are young people who want to escape the office and they want to use flex Day, how can they find the, um, the product itself
1: yeah just uh, i mean obviously flexday.com uh, you can go and check it out there we have um 20 locations across Toronto now, uh, it's all driven through an app, uh, download the Flexday app, um, sign up, when you create a create an account, you get a free uh, week uh, to try it out, um, and if you have any feedback, uh, let me know, it's justin at flexday.com, I love uh, conversations around the service and what you think about it, and um, when you love it and you're ready to join, it's $49 a month, which is less than most people spend on coffee in a week. So,
0: It's, it's true. I did the math.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's right there. <laughs>
0: Great. All right. Thanks a lot, Justin.
1: Thank you very much, Dan.
0: So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com podcasts Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way, and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use your music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.